Alia Bilal's Temple Folk is a captivating short story collection devoted to showing Black Muslims pursuing a life full of desire necessary to reaching one's own truth. This debut serves as a compelling means for America to recognize and acknowledge the historical significance of Black Muslims within the country's tapestry. Bilal's origin story into the publishing world is like nothing we've ever heard. She shares with us how Tipple Folk received a book deal before she even had an agent after taking a chance on a tweet from a young up-and-coming senior editor at Simon & Schuster. Bilal also talks to us about the inspiring works of Edward P. Jones and the tearful, full-circle moment when her work was met with his praise. Stay with us for another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Vulgar Geniuses Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Denny. And I am Veronica. And today... It's been a minute. It's been a minute. We we haven't sat down in front of this microphone in a while, but today, this is a good way to uh, break it back open. We are uh, joined by none other than um, our Book of the Month author for the month of July, um, Alia Bilal. Um, Alia was born and raised in Prince George's County, Maryland. She has degrees from Oberlin College and the University of London School of Oriental and African Studies. She's published stories and essays with the Michigan Quarterly Review and The Rumpus. Temple Folk is her first short story collection, and we are so excited to talk to her about this spectacular and noteworthy um, collection. Welcome to the show. Uh, how are you doing today, this morning? I'm great. I'm so happy to be with you this morning. Thank you so much. Oh, and we are too. So I'm going to pass it off to Denny. Um, so, you know, looking down at your little Instagram page, you have gone to a lot of places. Well, well, traveled girly, as they would call it. Um, what is one of the best places you have traveled to? Mm, one of the best places I've traveled to. Um, oddly enough, Bosnia. <laughs> I, I had a really great experience there learning about um, the war. And it just helped me put together a big puzzle piece of um, of 20th century history. So Bosnia was one of the best places I've ever visited. How long did you spend your time there? I was only there for two or three days. I was in Mostar and ended up in Sarajevo. And um, it was just fascinating learning about um, the history of Muslims in Eastern Europe. And uh, interestingly enough, it finds its way into Temple Folk. I, I just became very, very interested in learning about how the Muslims arrived there and stay there, remain there, and the interesting ways that Islam is expressed 
after the war, you know, um, the ways that people relate to their Muslim identity in Eastern Europe is very interesting. So Bosnia. Okay. So um, this is a question from a friend. <laughs> uh, best thing about being a PG girl. <laughs> Prince George, AKA pretty girl County. What is it about having that experience of growing up in that part of Maryland? Well, first of all, growing up, I didn't know that they were calling it Pretty Girl County <laughs> rather recent. Um, but I loved growing up in PG County. I don't know how to compare it to growing up anywhere else. But I think that environment just grew my love for my people. I just feel... Um, that my life was surrounded by black people of all kinds, you know, black people's were your black people rather were your lawyers, they were your doctors, they were your teachers. You know, I never developed this sense that um, to be black was to be deficient in any way. And I hate even saying that because um, that shouldn't be in anybody's mind. You know, it's, uh, but I'm sure that, you know, people have that experience all over the country and um, they can see the beauty of our experience and the diversity of our experience uh, everywhere. So that's probably not particular to PG County, but I guess that's one of the things I would say I appreciate about growing up there. I was uh, fascinated by this because when I first saw you, this was this video that you were um, talking in Mandarin. And my husband is Chinese, but from Hong Kong, his parents, so they speak Cantonese. But my son is very, very interested in languages. And I'm like, how did Elias, why is, if you close your eyes, and I'm like, you you can't tell me that this is Alia speaking in Mandarin. So I know you had a scholarship to go there and to study. Um, can you talk to us briefly about your time in China? Wow. Well, it's such a huge chunk of my life. I spent in total maybe 14 years off and on living there. And most of my adult life it was spent in China thus far. And so I am, it's just a huge part of my life. I'm still learning how to tell the story of my China experience. Um, but it was just a wonderful education and um, in connecting with this other half of humanity from which I'd felt estranged growing up as a child. You know, it's just amazing that you can have 1.3 billion people living in a single country and feel completely shut off from their reality. And, you know, we have humanity in common, but there's so many differences. And so the experience of living there, it just opened my heart um, and opened my mind to, again, like the diversity of human experiences. Um, and yeah, it helped take away some of the flattering illusions that I had about, um, you know, cross-racial solidarity and, you know, what that meant and looked like. It's very different in the propaganda posters that it is lived as a lived experience. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was um, a wonderful experience. Yeah. 
this interest come about for you to to dive in, you know, like you're 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 studying these things in in school. How did that come about where you're like, I want to I want to learn about like oriental and and African studies? Yeah, well, I think part of it was growing up in a black nationalist with a black nationalist consciousness. There is a lot of the orientalist imagination that finds itself into black nationalism. And so, you know, there's all this talk about looking to the East, you know, the East is where it's at. And um, even in the phrasings of the nation of Islam, they have this term, the Asiatic black man, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So there's this way in which uh, black nationalists of various types identify with Asia and I think it had just been floating in my imagination as this ideal place where um, people were combating racism and making strides um, for um, people of the third world and um, you know those illusions were quickly put to rest when I moved there Um, but yeah I think that's the the source of my fascination was from this like um, kind of Afro-Orientalism that I, that was part of my black nationalist formation. So before we start asking you all the questions in regards to your book, why don't you give the people at home uh, just a quick synopsis of what Temple Folk is all about? Oh, sure. Well, Temple Folk is a short story collection about a single community of African-American Muslims. And it chronicles this community as it is moving through the Nation of Islam experience in its second iteration. So basically the time span being, you know, late 50s, 60s into the mid 70s. So tail end of that experience into this Orthodox Sunni experience that begins as soon as Elijah Muhammad dies. Um, Elijah Muhammad's son, Murthdeen Muhammad, assumed the reins of nation leadership when his father died in 1975, immediately thrusting the community that remained, the community that didn't scatter and flee, into the Sunni Orthodox reality. And that has remained the mainstream of the Black Muslim presence in the United States since then, although in 1981, the nation was resuscitated under uh, Louis Farrakhan. This book, what I will say is that it is not about the contemporary nation. It does not deal in any way with Farrakhan's nation. It only intimates or flirts with the idea that it has been resuscitated, but we don't talk about the contemporary nation. It's, this is a community of African-American Sunni Orthodox Muslims reflecting back on their experiences in the nation of Islam. And um, yeah, and that's in summary, Temple Folk. So one of the most uh, fun things about reading is getting the chance to see how the writer has laid out the story uh, for their readers. And in uh, your stor- short story collection, sometimes, uh, or just in, in them in general, you can find that those stories are linked by way of characters or themes. 
And for Temple Folk, uh, as you stated, you've linked these stories through the usage of this timeline. Um, and in your first story, it's 1975, and we find out this, this, this very pivotal point within the story uh, that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has died. And it sets in motion our viewpoint of how the, the this change happens from the nation of Islam into this new iteration. And I was just curious as when you set out to write this book, was the idea of using time, this timeline transfer, uh, something that you started with, or was that something that when you pieced all of these stories together, because I'm sure that sometimes when you write short story collection is pieces that you've written at different points. Did you know that you wanted to start and work its way up all the way to present day? Or was this something that you just was like, oh, oh, this works how I how I've, you know, laid this this piece out? I think it was a happy coincidence that it worked out that way. I think my intention was to anchor the stories to history. I, I wanted the stories not just to be entertaining and fun on the level of you know, character development and plot, but I wanted there to be a real payoff for the reader so that they could walk away from the story feeling like they'd understood a corner of American history, just some aspect of American history in a small but significant way. And uh, yeah, just arranging the order of the stories has sort of worked out that there was this continuum effect. But um, no, going into it, that wasn't my intention. No. I loved it because uh, this book and there had been some others that we've read previously that I enjoy it when I'm like, oh, let me go to Google. Let me see how this like lines up. Mm -hmm. And then I end up learning things that I've not learned before. And you so eloquently like put this out, um, you know, to, to explain this timeline with these stories uh, wrapped around with these stories. It's just so beautiful how, how you did that. And I recently um, picked up a book that now the name is escaping me, but it is a is an actual telling, historical telling of um, the uh, Black liberation movement. I don't know why I cannot think of it. American family, I think it is. It's about the Shakur yes, family. Yes, American family. Yeah, and it really, I was just like reading yours and then reading this his book at the same time. It just was like, okay, these, these two pieces are kind of like lining up in certain ways. And I really love when I can see that, especially when it comes to historical fiction. So thank you for for creating such a book that makes you want to learn more about about our history and, and the country and people as well. So I love historical fiction. I I didn't think that when I picked up your book that you know, I was like, oh, it's a short story collection. It reminds me so much also of like Jamil Kochai's um um, the book, haunting the haunting of haji hotak. haji hotak um which was set you know in in logar so it it really reminds me of how he does like you know storytelling like your story storytelling but with a lot of like you said you know small but very significant uh points in american history um and i have so much respect for people like you because um, you've interlaced this real world events in novels that are digestible for people. Um, 
how did you manage, you know, to incorporate the nation of Islam in almost majority of the stories, you know, without sounding it, you know, you know, almost like didactic or preachy, but you just want to say it like how you, you want to present a story for people for us to understand. I didn't approach it from the point of view of wanting to be didactic. I think that's part of part of why this the book reads the way it does. The points that I wanted to make were more subtle than that. Uh, so for instance, with Blue, I approached that story based on a memory that I had growing up in this African-American Muslim community, which was pretty diverse in that at that point, you know, in the 1980s and 90s, a lot of the African-American Muslim families in my masjid did not come through the Nation of Islam experience, but there were enough that remained that you could see these very unique aspects of these families and the way that they were formed. And one of the things that I noticed was this pattern of nation men marrying very dark-skinned women. And um, those families always stood out because you could see. And so I thought, this is something I've never seen captured in literature. Um, The way that the nation of Islam really helped accelerate a reformulation of the way that we understand the beauty of dark skin um, it really is the nation of Islam that helps relanguage um, relanguage um, dark skin in this country and it just seems like that would be a great starting point for a story and uh, so yeah I wasn't really looking at the history thinking oh okay let me take this particular chapter you know it it was something more on an emotional level that I wanted to capture that sort of linked itself to uh, some historical episode yeah yeah but it was it was wonderfully done because you you don't you you don't feel like you're learning but you are and you don't you know because like you you use the heart before the mind when I think you know, in the in your stories, like you touch the heart first, and then after you finish the story, you think of like, oh, I just read something very important in history, and yet I've been captured. I don't even know it. Mm. And I think that's the that's the beauty of your stories. And another thing I love about your stories is that you have centered the lives of this Muslim woman. You know, it's very reminiscent of Deja Filios. Um, Secret Light of Church Ladies, um, which we also love. Um, the characters in your stories are multifaceted. They're very significant and celebrated. Um, can you talk more about the importances of highlighting these stories specifically within the Islamic faith? Oh, yes. The importance of it is that it's never been done. Yes. Never yeah read about these lives in a way that was truly literary and worthy of the subject matter. You know, um, it was just very important to me as I was teaching myself how to write that I set a very high bar because growing up in these spaces, I felt the dignity and the love and the beauty of the experience 
understanding that the way I experienced that this world is so different from the way that it is understood and spoken about in the popular media. And um, it was just important for me to make my own intervention aesthetically to make the case that this is a dignified group of people who are simply trying to recover a sense of their own worth, you know? And um, there are a lot of things that attach themselves to the nation. This book does not shy away from the bad aspects of the nation of Islam and its history, but at the same time, um, we're really just trying to portray human beings, you know, making decisions um, and women in particular, because of the stories that do get told, they tend to focus on men. Yeah. They tend to focus on the realities of prominent men. So we don't get to see how ordinary African-Americans existed within this movement. All we get are these hagiographies of, of these um, prominent male figures sort of dictating what life is gonna be for the nation members. Um, and so, it was important to compensate for the dearth of histories about ordinary Muslims and the stories of African-American Muslim women as well. Yeah, it really made me um, reflect and think because I grew up in the Philippines. The The northern and like the middle part of the Philippines are mostly Catholic Christians. But when you go down south, it's a nation of Islam. And by way of like Indonesia, Malaysia, and like that part of like Borneo and then it it makes me think you know how 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 that all came about like because before Christianity was brought into the Philippines it's mostly like you know they call like you know worshiping worshiping the earth and then I know Islam came first in the Philippines but was erased mm. because Christianity came in and then that's when the wars happened and then like the the Hispanic takeover in the Philippines. So it made me realize, like, you know, it made me reflect. I'm like, oh, that's something that I had I have to also know as for myself, because it is part of like the history of where I grew up in. And this makes me really like curious and how how everything like that came about. Cause it's not only, you know, like when you were doing your studies overseas like in China that made me question I'm like is there a connection mm. to to all of that because Chinese merchants came to that part of the Philippines to do trade just it's a lot in my brain <laughs> because of your book <laughs> wow fascinating wonderful so uh blue and do nor were the most perfect bookmarks to your collection. Um, they both feel as if the women in those stories are having a moment where they are shocked into remembering who they are uh, and making the choice to reckon with going after what their hearts are truly longing for. Um, did you want those two sections to talk to each other in this manner or um, are these like very much standalone narratives i wish i could say there was some grand design but they were very, <laughs> the processes of writing those stories were very separate and i couldn't no i didn't um have the intention to you know create those as bookends i like the the way that 
like that blue came into being was like a spontaneous moment of inspiration. I was speaking to my agent and telling him um, that I'd always wanted to write a story about dark-skinned women and coming into a sense of their own beauty. And as soon as I said that, there are a couple of ways that stories occur to me, but in this instance, I saw a constellation of stars in the sky mm. and it was so clear. Like I saw the path. All that I had to do was connect the dots and fill in the colors. It was so clear to me. The entire outline of that story came so quickly and I wrote it in a month, I think. Due North was a very different process and it happened a year after I wrote Blue. Um, I had been struggling because I had the idea in my head, like I want a story about X, Y, Z, um, a story that sort of chronicles this entire history in one little chunk. Christianity moving into nation of Islam, nation of Islam moving into Sunni orthodoxy, Sunni orthodoxy and beyond, right? I wanted a story that could do that, but I was having the hardest time putting together a set of characters, a situation, a plot that could encapsulate all of those ideas. And so after meditating on that for eight months, it came to me just like that. And I wrote, I wrote Due North in two and a half weeks. So it came, it came very quickly. And again, like there was a year's space between the writing of Blue and Due North. So they don't really have <laughs> any sort of connection um, other than this theme of movement, which is, which ties all of the stories together, I think. Yeah. You know, this is just a, just a wonderful book, especially yes. when you're like, no, I didn't intend to do that. It just happened because that just shows how well-written uh, this collection is to be able for someone like us to say, oh, I wonder if it's this reason why she wrote it this way and to know like, no, it just happened like that. Like you are really good. <laughs> this yes. book is amazing. Like I've been trying to hold myself because I don't want to interrupt you talking, <laughs> but I think this is why we love talking to writers because we understand like how you thought about things. And this makes you know, reading your book and understanding your book even more worth it because it was so hard for me to like, usually I love sto short story collection. If I could read short stories until I die, I would. <laughs> but, you know, there are also other books that needs to be celebrated. Um, But I always try to pick like, oh, my favorite story was this. It was very hard for me to like pick one from your short story collection. And if that is like something that's you know, uncommon for me. Like, I, that's why I asked for the book. And I'm like, let me just look at the stories. Because I'm like, do I really not have like, maybe like two favorites? I'm like, it's so hard to pick. <laughs> but Do North was one of them. And that when I finished your book, I was like, I'm speechless. <laughs> wow. Thank you. That's the best, um, the most gratifying thing I could, you could ever possibly say. There was... I'm sorry, I just want to clarify something. There was an organizing idea behind the whole book. Mm -hmm. So all of those stories were filtered through this idea of a continuum of religious experience 
Um, I have said this elsewhere, but maybe I can reiterate it with you guys. Um, that when I was trying to teach myself how to write about this world, I was approaching it from the perspective of this um, this notion that we as African-Americans were returning to a lost religious tradition, one that had been stolen from us through the transatlantic slave trade, because as you're aware, over 30% or around 30% of, of the African people who were brought to the new world and North America in particular were Muslim. And so as a child, that, that idea had always been you know, inculcated in my head that we were you're restoring our former religious identity. And the, the writing made clear that that was not what was happening. That was not actually the process that we were undertaking, that in fact, we were just moving from one idea into the next idea into the next. It was a continuum. And um, so Islam and the African-American religious experience represents one point on a longer trajectory of ontological engagement. You know, like the questions will continue for all of the subsequent generations. Islam will no longer be satisfying to the upcoming generation and then whatever that generation finds their kids will not be satisfied with their own religious notions so every generation finds its own expression its own unique way of of um, wrestling with the fact that we're here wrestling with this idea of origins and this idea of where we're going when we leave you know um and so when i got that the stories came and all of those stories are informed by that that basic idea that basic notion yeah it's like a like a ripple effect like an right. echo of a ripple effect mm -hmm. of how these things you know move throughout the culture and how they change and how people are changed by them and it is just beautifully beautifully written yes speaking of another theme you know like you were saying earlier um the theme of like desire, I think for me came up in a lot of the stories that I read, you know, whether it be the desire for unburdened, being unburdened by parental responsibility, the desire to be free of traditional religious beliefs, you know, gender and role limitation, or just to the desire to be and live as a black Muslim here in the United States. How was it to write a collection that explores such desires, hoping that encourages readers to look at the Black Muslim experience in a in a different or new lens? Mm. Wow. The idea of desire, I, I never thought about it that way, but I agree with you. I think a lot of the women characters in particular are their perspectives are really informed by desire, this this feeling of wanting more than what they have. And, you know, I don't write about my life. There is nothing autobiographical about these stories. I don't really show up in this book. But there are traces of my experience in the characters, and that might be one of them. So the, the idea of desire really captures the feeling I had growing up in these communities. And I'm very sensitive about this, the way that I say this, and I don't want to be misunderstood, um, though I'm sure people will will misunderstand me. Um, 
I had a wonderful, loving experience growing up in an African-American Muslim community. However, the realities that shaped my experience are the same kind of realities that ex shape the experiences of women in religious communities across any number of traditions, which is that we make up large numbers of these communities and yet have very little power and very little say so in dictating what happens in, in our communities. And that just planted a seed in me and an awareness in me that not only I, but a lot of the women in my sphere were coping with the sense that we wanted more. We wanted more. And uh, I think it sort of just comes comes out um, in the stories because of that. What was the hardest story that you had written for the collection? Hardest to write for you? Mm, I think Janaza was the hardest because by the, at the time that I was writing that I was still new to writing and I was trying to teach myself how to write men in a way that was at least convincing to me and I labored over that story just trying to get the tone right I I just it was very very important to me that he read very very male and mm -hmm. um, but also that story is one of my, frankly, it's one of my favorite stories in the book because it accomplishes so much. And I don't think it's even 6,000 words. Um, that was very challenging, teaching myself how to write um, Harold because it's not just a matter, obviously, of putting words on the page. You have to like occupy a male interior and fill out his perspective and, and make some decisions about how men relate to their worlds and um, what are the things that they notice and how do they make decisions. And yeah, that was the hardest, honestly, the hardest story in the book. It was the second story I had written. The first story was Woman in Niqab mm -hmm. and Janaza. Oh God, that was a real slog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah the, the the end part the ring toss at the end part I'm like what I'm glad that you that you talk about the difficulty in uh encapsulating like the male voice because I think a lot of times we forget that you have to be in mm -hmm. that space of like how do you want these characters to be to be written and it is one of those things where you realize like it, it, you can see it when you're watching a movie and you're like a girl would never say those things who wrote this you know and then you go back and you realize oh like okay <laughs> this is that somebody who has not done the work to really like find out exactly how somebody would respond to a certain thing or a certain experience and uh yeah so I'm glad you talked about that 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 struggle that you had with trying to make sure you had it down right because it's important you know uh, even though if it's a story that's dominated by women, you still want to be able to make everyone sound like how they're supposed to be. Um, your your publishing story is unlike anything I've ever heard. Will you share with our listeners how it came to be that your work found its way to Simon & Schuster? Yeah, oh my goodness. I Every time I think about this story, I just feel... So overwhelmed with 
the way that life is, you know, the way that life can change from being one way to another, you know, just in a matter of a few minutes. And so, um, short and sweet version. You get to, it's up to you how you want to tell it's it. It's your story. It's, it's your story. It's an amazing story. Yeah. So if you want to go the long route, we're here for it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'll tag a little bit onto the front end of it so that people understand just how significant this was to me. I had been through, and I won't go into the details. I don't want to bring anybody down through a major like trauma. And it was in a very, um, you know, tender place in life. Um, the great thing about that time, though, is that it gave me the solitude and the space that I needed to just be with my own thoughts. And that part of it was delicious. I really relished the time that I had to myself just um, thinking my thoughts. And I just love the kinds of things that occur to me when I have my own attention, you know, and so um but again, it was just a really tender time for me. And my sister was really very helpful in bringing me out of, of that state and took it upon herself to point me in the direction of great things that were happening. And so one day um, she sent me a screenshot of a, a, like a job announcement that my editor, Yadon Israel, had posted to his Twitter account saying that he'd just become an editor at Simon Schuster and was looking for manuscripts. And so my sister says, hey, Leah, send him your stuff. Okay, <laughs> the guy says he's looking for material. You're, you're writing all day like it's a full-time job. Why don't you send him your stuff? And so I looked at the screenshot and I saw it had like three or 4,000 likes. And I was like, this guy is never ever gonna respond to me, but let me get my sister off my case. So I, I followed up and I wrote to him and I guess it was a couple days later, he wrote me back, it was very sterile. Like, all right, sure, send me what you have. So I put um, a manuscript together of six stories and sent it off knowing, you know, I'm never going to hear from this guy. So I just went about my life. And one day I was, <laughs> I tell the story so much. I was watching the versus um, battles. You remember the versus battles? And it was Isley Brothers and Earth, Wind and Fire. And I love the Isley Brothers. I am a huge Isley Brothers fan. Oh, my goodness. The Isley Brothers. <laughs> come on now <laughs> so I'm, I'm sitting there and listen to Icy Brothers and I get this ding on my phone saying that Yadon Israel is following me on Instagram and I thought why would he why would he be following me you know I'm so ordinary you know there's nothing all that special about my life I didn't think anything of it so I just went back to you know, listening to the Ozzy Brothers and I was grooving. And so five minutes after that, I looked in my email and in the email, I didn't even read the subject, the title of the email. I just started reading the body of the message and he's saying all of these 
glowing things about my writing. <laughs> and then I finally read the subject and it says, I want to be your editor. And I was officially the first person he chose um, in his career as an editor. And I didn't have an agent. I did not have an MFA. I didn't have any of the polish or whatever other kinds of things that people tend to have when they're entering into this world. But there I was being plucked from obscurity and given this opportunity sans all of this stuff. And so again, like I was in this tender space and it felt like I was surrounded by clouds every day. But in that instant, I was above the clouds and it was sunny again. You know, it was like that moment in an airplane where you come through the clouds and you get the sun, man. Ooh. It was just this wonderful feeling of like, wow, um, this life, life isn't done with me yet. I'm still here. I'm still holding on. And so because of the way it happened, and I'm sorry, like you're letting me go on. <laughs> because Please, please. Thank you. Uh, because of the way it happened, I treat every aspect of this process like something from above, you know, like I, I respect every part of the process, every person, every soul I encounter connected to this work is just divine to me. Like I, everything about the experience is just elevated. I want to be I want to show up for everybody that shows up for temple folk. I want to show up for, for everybody that doesn't show up, you know, like I just want to be present in the experience and to honor this because it rescued me from a really dark time, you know? Um, and so, yeah, that's a lot. I haven't really told that oh, much of no. it. You know it's what? So it's, good. In, it's so good. It's so important. I tear up every time I hear you tell this story because I remember when he went and did the live and was asking for people I was in the live watching him ask for people to submit this stuff and to know that now we're talking to the person that, that he was first picked. he first picked and was like I want it I want it it is such a an honor to be able to see it come to fruition in that way of like I heard him put out the call and to know the story in between to get us to where we are with this beautiful book, <laughs> you know, and I want people to also know that you have the opportunity to build the life that you want and not to get caught up on thinking you have to have a certain type of credentials in order for you to achieve it. That if it's meant for you, it's that path is going to open up. And this is that prime example of you doing something that you love to do and giving the op have been given the opportunity to have it out in the world, which then brings me to talking about. It's the writing, though. That's what br brought her there. It's the writing. It's the writing. It's the writing. It's the writing. And and there being a connection with the person who blurbed your book. I want to talk about Edward P. Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about that. This is extremely special because of your relationship to his it's work. It's making me, like, sweat. <laughs> Just think <laughs> Talk about your connection to his work. 
and what it was like to him not only to read your book to now give you this like this uh this this seal of approval of like read this you all need to read this what was that Mm. every time I think about it it just overwhelms me it overwhelms me because to me Edward P. Jones is Zeus, man. He's the best. He's the best. To my sensibility, he's the best. Mm-hmm. I've never read work that rivets me, that humbles me as much as his work. It's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And um, I just develop this love affair with the work of Edward P. Jones like 15, 15 years ago, I think. And it was it was like falling in love because I'm reading this work and my eyes crossed. Mm. I was like, you are the one. You, you are the one. I just felt so humbled and and educated by his perspective. I love his take on the Black experience. I love his third person voice. I mean, he he can write in that God voice. And it's like his God, the God, the narrator of his third person stories is sort of disinterested, but sensitive. And I don't know, just everything about his perspective is perfection to me. And again, because I didn't have that filter of people telling me what I couldn't do, I set the bar for myself and I said, this is the bar. And I am not trying to say that I have met the bar that he set, but I am, I am saying that I was a very dedicated and thorough student and that I did find a way into the heart of those stories. Um, I found a way to connect with him through my love and appreciation of his work. And um, so, okay, this is the second part of the acquisition story. I get the editor first, which is reverse of how it typically happens. You get the agent first. And then Yadon told me, okay, now it's time for you to find an agent. So, you know, and I didn't know how to do this. I'm like, how do I do that? And the first thing that I did was like, Leah, you really have to dream big. Dream big, girl. And so I looked up Edward P. Jones's agent. I said, who represents him? Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And then I found, I found Eric Simonoff. And I sent him an email. And I said, I, I got this editor. Now working backwards, I need an agent. Would you consider reading my manuscript? Five minutes later, he wrote me back. And it was, again, very dry. Like, sure, just send me what you have. (laughs) And he wrote me back the next day. And his message to me was very warm. (laughs) Hi, I'm Eric. It's lovely to be talking to you. (laughs) Please, can we schedule a call? And so that very afternoon, we talked and we had like an hour long conversation. And the last thing he asked me before we got off the call, he said, all right, 
one more question. Do you want to work together? And I said, of course I do. <laughs> it was so amazing. So I was connected to Edward P. Jones through his agent. And then I finished the book, right? I had the advanced reader copy. And as Yadon and I and Eric, the three of us were plotting, you know, how we were going to get blurbs. I, I said, I, it was either me or Yadon that said, let's try for, you know, Edward P. Jones. And Eric, my agent was a bit negative on that. He says he hasn't blurred anything in forever. He's probably not going to even give this a second thought. So let's not put our rest, our, our hopes there. And so I had given up on the idea as soon as it was stated. I just knew we wouldn't hear anything from him because as I learned, he hadn't blurbed a book in 15 years. 15 years. Holding my and breath for the story. I know. Okay. And so February 14th, isn't that Valentine's Day? Is that Valentine's Day? Yes. Okay. Anyway, it was February of this year, 2023. And I am in my house doing some other kind of work. And I get a phone call from New York City. I'm like, oh, this must be Eric. So I answer the phone. He says, hey, you got a minute? All right, sure. What's happening? Uh, we got a blurb in today. You want to hear it? Sure. And he reads the blurb. And I'm like, wow, that's really glowing. And then he says, you want to know who wrote it? I'm like, sure. He says, Edward P. Jones. And then I, I don't cry. I, I struggle to cry. Like that kind of emotional response is very rare for me, but I cried. <laughs> I cried because it was so, it was this full circle moment where I had spent all of these years just loving and worshiping this man's work. And letting it teach me because he is my only teacher, I would say. He is my only teacher. And to know that he sees some smidgen of value in the work that I produced, to me, it's like, you know, what more could I ever, ever hope for? What more that could I ever hope for? Whew. It was just so profoundly meaningful to me that this man who is really about the work, as am I, like all this other stuff does not matter to me as much as showing up on the page and bringing it, you know, bringing it to the page. Like I'm about that page. That's my strength. You know, it's not interfacing as much as I, I try my best, you know, but I'm on the page. I'm in the work. And a man who is as much about the work as I am, you know, everything else to him is just tertiary. For a person who's as serious about this craft as he is to see the value in what I do, it just means the world to me. It means the world to me. So I, I feel so, I feel like I really am on the path, you know, I really am on the path. And his endorsement confirms that for me. Yes. Um, 
we're we're gonna close this out in a in a couple of questions and and I want to ask you I, I I guess maybe I don't even know if this is a question is more of a statement but I read your your LA Times op ed in which you write about visiting your grandmother in DC and how she and your grandfather the reason why your family became Muslim in the in the first place and in the article. You say something that just kind of like stood out for me, and it was that um, a thought crossed my mind. It was rare to have grown up cocooned from powerful forces in the broader culture. I would later learn how the equation of American religiosity to Christianity would render incongruous in the minds of many the idea that Muslims like us even existed and that our voices merited equitable space in the public square. And when I think about what it is to be Black and Muslim in America and how far reaching even to those who might not even have ever stepped put a foot in the mosque had any idea of how it has affected our lives as Black people. It is huge. And I'm just curious is what do you want people to take away from reading this book about these multifaceted lives of being Black and Muslim in America? The major thing that I want people to take away from this book is um, an appreciation of temple folk as an aesthetic achievement, not so much as a sociological survey or anything like that. The stories outside of what they impart in terms of the history, they're just good stories. You know, that's really the main takeaway that I want people to to have with this book. Um, but also to understand that we have ways of conceiving of what it means to belong to a culture and that the culture itself is always trying to educate us to broaden our notions because our notions are always in every culture you encounter in the world, never quite encompass the full breadth of what it means to be that thing. There are always pockets and niches and experiences that don't find themselves into the dominant narrative that are equally authentic to that, that experience. And the, uh, this is an example of that in the American um, American um, literary landscape, that we have ways of conceiving of Americanness, of conceiving of what it means to be the folk, what it means to be authentic to this cultural space. But what this book is doing is really challenging people to see these characters as anything but American. These, this is a culturally distinct space, no doubt, clearly, but at the same time, it is authentically American and not understanding it leaves out a huge chunk of um, the American experience from your understanding what it means to be here. Because if you don't understand the world of temple folk, how are you engaging with hip hop in a meaningful way? Exactly. exactly. How, yes. how are you engaging with uh, the black power struggle in a meaningful way? How are you engaging with the history of Black dissidents in a meaningful way? How are you coming to grips with the righteous 
indignation that Black people feel about the ways that we've been treated in this country in a meaningful way. This world encompasses all of that. And if you don't have an appreciation, a way of approaching it, you're only going to see it as ugly. You're only going to see Black pain, Black anger as something that's irredeemable, when in fact, it's only expressed because we know of our own humanity. We know that we are deserving of good things. And um, in this community, I feel like people were trying to shield my generation from the worst of what they had experienced in those times. And you need that firewall. You need that firewall of just a really intense, strident message saying, no, we're not going to take it. You know, and so how do you dignify that? You know, Temple Folk is just trying to show that these are just people trying to live their lives, trying to experience some beauty, trying to see beauty in themselves. Um, and, and it's a huge part of the American experience that nobody talks about because of the epistemic violence that surrounds the Nation of Islam and all kinds of Black dissident movements where, I'm sorry, sorry for going on, Oh no, but we live in a culture that has a really hard time wrestling with the fact that Black people have a right to be upset. Right. Yeah. And so anybody that expresses any kind of dis-ease with our condition in this country is framed in a certain way. And so this movement is framed in a certain way that denies the people that went through it their humanity. And so th that's part of the project of this book as well. It's just a restoring a correct view that, yes, it was complicated. It was abusive. It was a lot of bad things. But at the same time, there was an intent to help you know, black people move forward and recover uh, a sense of wholeness. Yes. Uh, thank you so much for that. Uh, before we let you go, um, that was beautiful. Yes, yeah, sentiment. I, before I, I hop into we, the last part of our need a moment of silence to like, <laughs> you know, absorb all of that because it's very true. Yes, yes, yes. Um, so what we like to ask of everybody that comes on the show uh, and, and you have two choices. You can either give us your top five favorite books of all time, which we know could change time you get off this Zoom, or <laughs> the top five books that you feel like you really want people to know about that might not be getting it shine or that you're really excited about. But just just let us know what those or might be for you. Or a combination. Yeah, or a combo. Mm. Okay, so top five books, Lost in the City by Edward P. Jones would be up there, um, probably number one. Um, Toni Morrison's Song of Solomon would be up there. Um, everything by Gwendolyn Brooks, mm. especially Maud Martha would be on that list. Um, Fiction, right? Um, what nonfiction is up to you. Um, there's so many great books. This is really hard. 
like you're breaking up with each one of them if you don't sell you know if you don't pick them <laughs> that's three right yes um all in Hagar's children that would be the fourth um and gosh I'm gonna hate myself if I get this last one wrong um because gosh I I read a lot of philosophy as a kid and philosophy to me, I don't understand it, but I like the way that philosophers think. And um, it's a very great springboard for fiction writers. And so I see like Camus, The Stranger was very, very important to me um, as, as a, a novel that's really, you know, focused on like existentialism. Um, but I, I would have probably thrown some, some Kant in there or something like that <laughs> as well. So, yeah. Well, I think that is a solid list. Yes. You know, this is the list of the moment that we're in right now in this conversation. Um, and, and we are glad that you shared those books for people to go and reflect on. Um, Aliyah, thank you so much for talking to us being in this space uh today we're so grateful to have actually gotten a chance to make it happen and we just want to say uh that your book is going to be one that is going to be taught and talked about and read for many 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 years and we are so grateful to have been at the beginning of your origin story uh mm -hmm. just thank you so much for for coming on to our show today you have a brilliant mind. You have a brilliant mind. You have a lot to say. And I'm glad that I witnessed it. I'm glad that I read it. Thank you for being so intricate, so purposeful, mm -hmm. so very diligent in putting this book together for people to understand, for people to know, just for people to be able to consume and for them to have an understanding that the world doesn't stop from their point of view that in order to live in this country, you need to learn everybody's story. Mm -hmm. Like it, you can't, you can't function in this, in this country by yourself. You can't mm -hmm. function in this country in whiteness. You can't function in this country with patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Thank you for this book. You are wonderful. Thank you for this time. Thank you for being with us. I'm so grateful. I'm I'm so connected to you. Um, thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, you have no idea what it means to me, and it really just raises my spirits just knowing that you you read this book, you gave it your full attention, and you connected. So thank you. Thank you. You take care. Okay. Have a good rest of your day. All right. Same to you. Thank you so much. Bye. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let us explain. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast and listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. 
It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. And best of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started.